The rest of you can turn to Exodus chapter 39. Exodus chapter 39. For those of you who didn't uh, take my encouragement last week to read chapters 36 through 39, um, you can open up your Bibles and do some speed reading right now because I'm not reading that whole section. Um, yeah, you hear that? I'm not. So, so Exodus chapter 39 right now. So let's pray for our kids. Father God, I thank you for these gifts. I thank you for the blessings they are, the challenges they are. Lord, I thank you for each stage of their growth and their growing knowledge of who you are. Lord, I pray that during this time, Lord, that you would use this to open their ears and their eyes and their hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ so that at a, in an early age, they would respond with a yes to all the promises found in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Caden, would you like to lead everybody out? Okay, you lead the parade. Exodus chapter 39, and our reading will start at verse 32. Exodus 39, verse 32, and we'll read to verse 43. Before we do that, let's take a moment and prepare our hearts for hearing God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Lord, we are here this morning to hear from you. We are here as we open up your word, Lord. We know that you speak. And Lord, much like the children of Israel, we will obey all that you command. Lord, may that be true in our hearts as we hear your word being spoken. And Lord, as, as you use me, your servant, to bring the, your words to bear on our hearts, Lord, would you give me the strength, the wisdom a beautiful unction this morning, Lord, that would change hearts for the glory of God. So, Lord, move by your Spirit in each and every life this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 32, chapter 39. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ramskins and goatskins, and the veil of the screen, and the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all of its utensils and the table of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all of its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all of its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle. 
for the tent of meeting, for the finely worked garments, for the ministering in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. So how many of you grew up in a church where there was really kind of a strong Sunday school culture? You know, whether it be during service or in between the service, after the service, there was there was a strong culture. And, you know, in that strong Sunday school culture, there's a culture where we would do things that just probably were not normal. Like the whole I've kind of laughed and mocked the flannel graphs. And for those of you who grew up in that culture, you know it was a, a felt board with all the little flannel graphs. And you, Jesus was a blonde Caucasian guy with a white robe and a blue sash, and he would kind of float along, you know, talking and preaching and healing people. And there were different stories, a part of it. But you also know that there were, um, in that Sunday school culture, there was a lot of songs, a, a lot of Sunday school songs that we do not sing here. For example... Deep and wide. How many of you know deep and wide? Deep and wide, deep. And then it goes faster. And then you got a, and so you got that song. Then you got Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so, so, so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left hand. And then you have all these kind of, it kind of helped us get a little bit more charismatic, maybe. I don't know. But we've got that song. And there's, then there's this song, OB. Careful little eyes. What? Okay, so, and then what about this one? I am a C. I am a C. Very good. Okay, stop. <laughs> Yeehaw. Okay, and then there's another one called, uh, and we kind of have the spelling thing as Christians, don't we? What, what about um, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. It's kind of a rousing kind of cheer kind of thing. Or what about do Lord? Do Lord, oh do Lord. Okay, so now you're going to have this stuck and you're not going to be able to listen to the sermon. In, so those were some of the songs in my Sunday school culture. But there's other, other churches and denominations where there's other songs. And as I'm thinking about this, I thought, okay, what are some so- even songs about that might pertain specifically to this text as we look at the children of Israel saying, okay, Lord, we will obey all that you have said. And now we're going to actually build all that you have commanded. And there's really not a lot. But I found one. It's a Sunday school song about obedience and how it is the very, very best way to show that you actually believe in Jesus Christ. And I thought about singing it, but I thought, you know, that's that's dangerous. One, it kind of can be used against me later on, if I, especially if I screw it up. And there's also the nerves. I already sweat enough the way it is. I don't need to sing and sweat even more. So I thought the best way to have it done is to show you a video by two more qualified kids. Their names are Paris and BJ. 
Connor, why don't you show them? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. And joy you really sees. Obedience is the very best way to show Here's the spelling. O E E D I E N C. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this idea that, you know, the, beyond just the cuteness of these kids, and you can see. She's got it down. You know, she's got the signs. She's got all the singing. And, but he's going, what? You know, uh, beyond how cute he is, the message of this song is really relevant for this section of Scripture in chapters 36 to 39. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, doing exactly as the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key Doing it, do it immediately, and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. So after the, the devastating failure in Exodus chapter 32, where the children of Israel uh, worship the golden calf, God gives the children of Israel another opportunity in Exodus 34, and the covenant is validated again by just this glow of Moses, and clearly Moses had been in the presence of God, and then God gives them very, two very specific commands regarding Sabbath rest. Rest. Rest in me. Trust in me, and give Give, be generous, because I have been generous to you, both of which communicate something important. And whether or not, it also communicates whether or not they get it as the people of God, if they really understand. So beginning in chapter 35, verse 30, and all the way through 39, verse 43, we read about the actual construction of the tabernacle. And what emerges in this lengthy, very lengthy account is a clear picture of the children of Israel's obedience. Their obedience. And Moses had already told the people exactly what this tabernacle is going to look like in chapters 25 to 31. And then they disobeyed terribly. The bomb dropped and they worshiped the golden calf. So Moses had told them, this is what it's going to be like. I've got the instructions. Here's the blueprint. Boom. They failed. They blew it. And now the question is whether or not the people were serious about their new relationship with God. How would they know if they were serious? How would God know if they were serious about this new found relationship? Obedience. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. The obedience of Israel in constructing the tabernacle showed that they actually believed. Do you know that this formula, the connection between belief and obedience, is, is the central part of the message of the Bible? 
It's a central message. Israel showed that they believed through their obedience. And you show that you believe in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done for you and in you and continues to do in you through obedience. So let me show you this in, in two different ways. First, we are going to look at, see this thread of obedience through Exodus 35 through 39. We're going to see this kind of thread working out and, so that we can learn the essentials of obedience. And then secondly, we're going to make this connection in the New Testament and learn why obedience is actually essential. So what are the essentials of obedience? What's the essentials? Well, when I began looking at this, this book and uh, trying to outline it all into different sections, different little sub-parts, sub this section really both intrigued me and it really frustrated me. Um, the reason that it kind of created the, this paradoxical kind of tension in me is because the content of these chapters is basically a repetition of what we've already talked about. So am I going to repeat the exact same thing again? Oh, Lord, please no. You know, you don't want to hear the same sermon twice, even though sometimes we need it. So as I read through it and I compared it with chapters 25 to 31, it seems strange to me that God simply tells them what to do and then the, the people do it. It seems strange. There's really nothing absolutely new to this story. But then it dawned on me that if the major problem that Moses encountered at the base of Mount Sinai was unbelieving disobedience, then it would make sense that these chapters would feature believing obedience. So he first saw unbelieving disobedience, and now he is, there is believing obedience. The point then is not just what they did, but that the fact that they did it at all. They actually did it. It's not the fact that they, they used this blueprint and did this and did this. The fact is what was going on at the heart level for these people. Therefore, these chapters really aren't about the construction of the tabernacle. They are about Israel's complete obedience after a complete failure. So what did their obedience look like? Let me give you five essentials. First, it was empowered obedience. It was empowered. Hopefully you'll remember that this whole book really is not about Moses. It's really not about Israel. It's not about Egypt. It's not about Pharaoh. It's, it, this ultimately is about God at this point. They are going to be, uh, and we're going to even see this even emerge even more in these people. But they, they're going to build this tabernacle. But God is going to empower their obedience. He is the one who is going to give them the skill and he's also going to give them the ability to actually obey. So this, this text kind of centers around two, two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. And we see this, the following, there, there's a description of all their work. And if you want to turn back, you can look at Exodus chapter 35, starting at verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has 
filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence and knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen or by a weaver or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded. Don't miss the fact here that these men were called by God. And they were filled with the Spirit. And there was a direct connection between God's gifting and their action. Direct connection. Notice especially in verse 35 that he filled them with skill to do every sort of work. They, they were working, but their actions were not independent. Underneath their obedience was ultimately God's empowerment. His empowerment and their obedience would never have been possible unless God had rescued them and empowered them. So one of my favorite verses in the New Testament that highlights this divine uh, empowerment of obedience is found in Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13. Paul commands obedience assures them that God is the one who is going to help them. So God doesn't save you and say, all right, good luck, guys. God says, I am going to save you, and on top of that, I'm going to empower you in such a way so that you can accomplish these things. Listen to it. Therefore, my beloved, as much of you as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to actually work for his good pleasure. Some of you are going, really? God... So my, our, our pathway towards holiness, our pathway towards becoming more like Christ, you are not on your own to figure that out. Christ, by His Spirit, is empowering you to accomplish it. it your obedience is to be empowered by God. So we obey, and God empowers our obedience. Secondly, it is enthusiastic. Obedience, enthusiastic. Feels like kind of like an oxymoron, right? Obey and enthusiasm. You might be tempted to think that God's empowerment kind of creates a robotic kind of activity. Well, God is making me do it, therefore I, I move and I act in such a way without any kind of joy. But 
if you believe that we are just kind of robots performing God's work, you would miss both the beauty of empowerment and what is actually happening. Instead, notice what we see in Exodus 36 verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. So there's this, this stirring going on. And don't miss the fact that God's empowerment and their enthusiasm go hand in hand. It goes together. Their hearts were stirred to do the work. They were enthusiastic about their obedience. There was a deep, man, I, I can't, I'm, there's a stirring. Have you ever had that experience where I cannot wait to do this? Maybe you have it more about vacation or your special hobby or your gift or your talent, you're doing those things. But this desire, I am stirred towards, I want to do God's will. And I'm excited about it. It's going to be hard work. Doesn't negate that. But I, I desire to be used by God. And I am stirred in such a way to do it. So that extended to more than just the artisans. We learn in, in 30, Exodus 36 verse 3 that the people kept on bringing offerings to the tabernacle and eventually Moses had to give the instruction to every ministry leader that, that, that he says, stop it. Stop bringing stuff. Your enthusiasm to be obedient is going over the top in a good way. Stop bringing it. Their enthusiasm was so enthusiastic that they brought too much. Oh, that we would be those people, right? And I'm not talking about just uh, financial resources as a church. However, that would be wonderful. Could you imagine where finally the deacons say, listen, we have met the budget. Enough. We, we don't know what to do with all these resources. We're going to have to start giving it away. Every dollar that comes in, a dollar is going to have to go out. You know, what a beautiful thing. But also about your gifts and your talents. You are so enthusiastically charged and stirred that you are saying, Manda, what do you need for the children's ministry? I got these gifts and I can't wait to do it. Tell me what do I need to do. I have this desire to disciple young men or older men, or I want to be a part of leadership development. I want to serve the needy. Tell me what do I do. I, want to, I am so excited about doing this. I would, if that happened, I would drop and give 50 right here. I'd probably be exhausted for two or three weeks, but that would be an exciting moment where everybody is enthused about using all the gifts and talents that God has given you. Number three, though, it was actually tangible. So far, we've talked about the kind of the emotional characteristics of obedience, right? But it's important to note that true obedience is not just something that happens in the heart. It's not just. It, it does happen there. It's something that results in tangible action. Obedience involves activity. It's not just a theoretical idea or something that's just between me and God. 
I'm being obedient, and we're going to keep it kind of hush-hush. Obedience, while involving the heart, is something that must be done. The tangible action of Israel was connected to very physical things, like the actual physical construction of the tabernacle. God had given them very specific instructions, and their obedience was directly connected to their action to doing what everything that the Lord had commanded. Everything. Chapters 36 to 39 are just an a, a, a outline of everything they've done. The, the tabernacle structure and covers, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and the bronze basin, the exterior courtyard with all of its structures and its curtains, the priestly garments, including the ephod and the breastpiece and the robe and the turban. All these things were done, and each element had beautiful, significant, spiritual significance, and they were a vital part to their worship experience for the people of Israel. And each element was prescribed by God. And Moses, God told Moses exactly how this tabernacle was going to be constructed. There was physicality to their obedience. Real physicality. And that was extremely important. They needed to have right hearts but action was the key. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Obedience was tangible. It was visible. It was being lived out and acted out before each other's eyes. And the same is in the New Testament. Having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ not only means that you have been rescued from your sin through the gospel... It also means that there is a different conduct and different actions and different lifestyles, a different obedience. The gospel actually works. He saves you, empowers you, stirs you, and you are working it out, not just theoretically, but you are doing the hard work of obedience before the eyes of the people. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with with love. Do you see that? How it's not just, uh, just me and Jesus having this moment. It's actually worked out in all kinds of ways. Make no mistake about it, true belief and obedience work together. They go together. And if people would not, if the people would not have obeyed, it would have been another example of hard-hearted lack of belief. Now, now think about that. Can I, can I take that home? Can I drill it in and just say, okay, what does that mean? When I am not being obedient to all that God commands in my personal, private, marital, family, work life, and God, I know God tells me these things and I'm supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when those things don't happen, what does that say about me? Am I in a hard-hearted place of ultimately a lack of belief? 
that God is sufficient, that God can work with me and empower me to be more obedient, to be more Christ-like? Do I not really believe that he says that he is who he is? Their tangible obedience verified that their heart was in the right place. I'm sure you've heard people say something like this, or maybe you're guilty of saying it. Well, what he did was wrong, but his heart was in the right place. Ever been guilty of saying that? I have. I know he's wrong, but ultimately his heart's in the right place. Now, I understand what people are really trying to say with that, They want to give people the benefit of the doubt, and that's really commendable and that's really kind. However, that statement could imply that your actions do not really matter if you have a right heart. But the Bible tells us that actions actually come out of your heart. When God takes a hold of your heart and changes you, he makes you a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come if he has made you a new creation and your heart is new it was a heart of stone it was hard to the things of God it was hard towards each other and you are now given a new heart and actually brotherly affection and a different kind of love it should move you to act and live differently to work it out differently in other words your actions really do matter So don't make the mistake of thinking that tangible actions of obedience or disobedience do not matter. Obedience is the very best way to show that you actually believe. And if you believe, if you believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has saved you from the pit of hell and placed your feet on solid ground... You are safe and secure. You are his. You've been given a new name. Your name is now no longer Paul Vroom, but it is Christian, son of God. Then you will obey. Specifically and tangibly. Number four. Another example is that it's, it's complete. The story concludes with the tabernacle I being presented to Moses. It's kind of like a parade, right? They're all, I've all, we've all done our task, and they kind of do this parade of bringing things before Moses. He had given them instructions from the Lord, and they had obeyed completely. Notice how this theme of complete obedience appears in the text. In verses uh, 39, verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. All the work It wasn't done partially, 95%. It was done completely. The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. I love that kind of of awkward, so they did at the end. It's like, okay, I I told you this. No, really. So they did it completely. And then you got in verses 42 to 43. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work. And behold, they had done it. Another one of those. He saw all the work and and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. 
So now this, this should sound somewhat familiar because the people of Israel had told Moses in Exodus chapter 9 that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That was back before the whole debacle with the golden calf. Listen, all that the Lord commands will do, but then the golden calf happens. And the, the beauty of this moment is the fact that they actually did what the Lord commanded them to do. They listened and they obeyed. And it's great to say that you will obey. It's even better to actually obey. Partial obedience is disheartening, isn't it? If you're a parent, you, you get it. As, as a kid, I didn't understand why my dad would just get so ticked off at me when he'd say, hey, Paul, would you go uh, wrap up that, that garden hose over there? And I go over there and I do like part of it. Then I like butterfly and, you know, and I go chase this for a little bit. Or, hey, I need you to clean out the barn and totally clean this up. Or I need you to make your bed. Or I need you to do this and I do that. And all of a sudden I get distracted or I just, I get bored with it and I don't do it. And ultimately these actions, these actions feel like complete, do not feel like complete obedience at all. It's meeting the bare minimum, maybe, just to get by. So, a question for you. Rhetorical. Are you and God on the same page when it comes to complete obedience? Really, think, think about that before you say, oh yeah, yeah. No, because complete obedience is one of the heart and one of the mind, and God empowers you, and there's a desire, and you're stirred to do it. Are you on the same page? I, I remember a few years with, when the whole Clinton scandal came out, him and a certain woman named Monica, and I remember hearing him say that he had learned how to cope with his problems in life by just compartmentalizing them. And I remember thinking... Yep, that's the problem. You have compartmentalized your morals, your values. Obedience cannot be compartmentalized because we are dealing with God. So, church, I want you to be careful here. God intends for obedience to be total to be complete, to be thorough. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes genuine repentance in this way in 2 Corinthians. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to, to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. True obedience is always complete. But then number five, it is blessed. It's kind of a Christianese term. But we're going to stick with it because it's a biblical term, a biblical idea. 
one of the first lessons were that Laura and I taught our kids, it was kind of twofold. One, listen and obey. Those are, and if you have kids, I want to encourage you, listen and obey the first time. Not like 12, after, I'm going to repeat you and badger you and badger you and badger. No, listen, obey the first time. And then the second kind of part, that could be just totally legalism, right? Obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. We, we want our kids to understand that doing what is right brings blessing and favor and good results. We, we want them to see the connection between their actions and the results that will come down the road. And we know that, honestly, I know that this is very elementary and, and because there are many times in our adult life where you do what is right and you don't, you don't really feel like there's a visible or tangible kind of blessing. But in the early days of a child's life, there is, this is a very important concept to understand. Listen and obey the first time, and your obedience will bring about a blessing. It teaches us something about God, right? Too? As your, your parents who are trying to show you what fatherly love and what, what a mother, the relationship that we have, and it's reflecting something of the God. And we want you to see that, listen and obey the first time, because that's God's desire. If the children of Israel had heard those words, listen and obey the first time, but still they were quite <laughs> disobedient. Now they're experiencing there is blessing. Verse 43 records that after Moses had observed the results of all of Israel's labor, he was very pleased. There was something in his heart where he was, going, he was stirred as this kind of shepherd. And they followed all of God's instruction. And the result was the text said that Moses blessed them. Does that mean that he started handing out Jolly Ranchers and saying, hey, good job, man. Good job, man. Way to go. Kind of, as a fifth grade teacher, that was kind of my way of bribing kids into good behavior. Bribery, whatever it takes. That's not what Moses did here. The, we don't know exactly what the blessing entailed, but the most famous blessing in the Old Testament should be very familiar, familiar to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Moses was reflecting the pleasure of God in his blessing the people. Maybe that should be part of the responsibility of a pastor and elders that as we see you working out and becoming more fully obedient that we say, hey, I just want to bless you. Can I pray for you? And that God would just bless this activity, your work, your faithfulness. And not, not, not so that you just get the little pat on the butt and say, hey, good job. And we get this kind of moral kind of uh, lead kind of thing going, but because we recognize God working in your life or you desiring to be more faithful, we want to say, I want to bless you. Can, can I just pray for you? Maybe that should be one of the roles of a pastor and an elder. So there was something, there's something profoundly joyful about knowing that people whom you love are doing what is right. No one wants to be the parent of a fool, right? There's moments where I, I go, I am a parent of a fool, and I love him very much. 
But nobody wants that to be kind of our lifetime. Nobody wants to watch a friend or a loved one fall apart because of their disobedience or their selfish nature. No one wants to see this. But uh, John, third John chapter, or chapter, kind of verse chapter four says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's saying this about, the Apostle John is saying this about his church. I have no greater joy than to know that my, my church that I'm shepherding, they're, they're actually walking in the truth, the straight and narrow. They're, they're serving. They're, they're using their gifts. They're, they're using, allowing God to empower them and use them in ways that are, are diverse and beautiful and, and magnificent. And I want to bless them. There's no greater joy for a pastor than to say, What? Did you hear what they're doing? I am blown away by that. I love hearing stories of God working. There's no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what are the essentials of of obedience? We've seen five. It's empowered. It's enthusiastic. It's tangible. It's complete. And it is blessed. So For Israel and for you, the very best way to show that you believe is by by obedience. Now that may raise a a kind of a red flag for some of you because you look at your life right now and you realize there is no way that I really believe in Jesus given my life right now. If that's the case for you today, maybe you need to start with the need to receive Christ today. Receive Him. And receive the empowerment for obedience that has always been so elusive. So there's no perfect Christians, that's for sure. I want to be clear about that. But you cannot claim, friends, you cannot claim to be a follower of Christ if obedience is not a real and tangible part of your life. So obedience is the best way to show that you believe. So we've talked a lot about God's graciousness in this. And we've observed God's graciousness and his deliverance of the children of Israel from slavery, right? And his tolerance even when they were complaining, whining children, and his choice to give them even a second chance. But it's important to note here that there's another side to the coin. Uh, Obedience to God's command was and is very important. And I want to wrap up kind of this section of Exodus by pulling back a bit farther and looking at why obedience would be so essential. Why does obedience really matter? Why, if you get down to brass tacks, why does, why does obedience really matter? If I've been saved by grace... Nothing that I've done, but God has saved me by grace. Why does obedience matter? He loves me in spite of all my my screw-ups, right? Do you sin so that grace may abound? The answer is obviously no. Okay? So why does it matter? It is practical for us every time that we are tempted. We are faced with the question with of whether or not true obedience is essential. So why, why does it matter? Because number one, it honors God as God. The Ten Commandments begin with the, the words, 
I am the Lord your God. The reason God starts off there is because the commands that follow are rooted in his place as God. In other words, God has the right to prescribe behavior and require obedience because of the fact that he is God. Therefore, when we submit to his commands and we, we obey, we are giving evidence that we understand who he is and who we are. When we obey, we say, you are God, I am not. Therefore, I will obey. Disobedience is a statement about who, what we think about God. His authority and our desire for autonomy. When we disobey, we say, screw you, God. I want to be autonomous. I want to do what I want to do. I want to feel good. I want to, I want to have this. I want to be this way. I, I, want, to, I want to escape. I, I want to be autonomous. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that disobedience serves to suppress the truth about God which is clearly seen in creation. What truth? Namely, that He is God and that we are not. Obedience requires and acknowledges that I am not the center of the universe. Secondly, it's essential because it validates the gospel. As if the gospel needs validation, but before the world and watching eyes... The gospel, our obedience validates the gospel. So I'm going to jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament for this point. The gospel is a simple message that we are saved by faith through grace, not of our own works in any way, shape, or form. The beauty of the gospel is its grace. The way that God has treated us despite our obedience or disobedience. But it doesn't there. St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending on how snooty you want to be, said it like this. Faith alone saves. But the kind of faith that saves is not alone. Obedience verifies that true faith has come. So you are saved fully by faith. But that faith does not stand alone. There is something else that works out from it. So my, my favorite text that speaks about kind of the double-sided nature of grace and obedience is Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the purpose of the gospel, the, the purpose of the gospel is through the work of Christ to make us new creations, save us from our sins in the future and now. And the and obedience gives evidence that the gospel really is at work in your life. 
Thirdly, it gives assurance. If you grew up, grew up in the, especially in the Reformed Church kind of group, or even here in Missio Dei Church, or maybe you've heard it outside, you've probably heard the phrase, once saved. Well, only a few of you grew up in that church. Once saved, always saved. So while I, I fully wholeheartedly agree with that, so those of you who are Reformed hear that, although I, I fully agree with that statement, it's often used as the basis of, for assurance of one's salvation, right? To get assurance, a person was basically just told, look back to the time where you were saved, that exact date, and that, that's going to assure you that Jesus saved you. Man, remember that point? Once saved, you're always going to be saved. And, and that's a good start for assurance. It's a good start to, to kind of have a memory of that day that I, I received Christ and I responded to that grace by faith. But Peter tells us ongoing obedience is part of our assurance. Ongoing obedience is part of our assurance. In other words, there's no better way to assure your heart that you are the real deal than by living it out through obedience. Listen to 2 Peter. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. How? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's, there's a practicing and a, an obedience that comes from being new creation. And it assures our heart that God is doing willfully in my own flesh. I would not be able to accomplish any of this. I wouldn't be able to put aside pornography. I wouldn't be able to put aside hate. I wouldn't be able to put aside this and this, these things. Look at what God is doing in me. And it's assuring me that I am actually saved. That God is at work in my heart and in my life. And this is fruit. And it assures me. When everything is hitting the fan and it's ugly, you can look and say, but God is empowering me to be obedient. And that assures me that I am His. So obedience is the very best way that, to believe, that showed that you believe. And it's also, number four, lastly, it is the very best way to live. This final reason why obedience is essential is because God's ways actually work. Obedience to what God commands is, is the very best way for you and me, for us corporately and individually to live. If God is the creator of the world and, and if he has told us how to live, if he is who he says he is, then friends, live according to his commands. Because living according to his commands is the best way. Through obedience, God offers us true life. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. 
they are good to do. Oh, sorry. They are, they are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Obedience takes hold of that which is truly life. There is no better way to live than to be a grace-receiving, sin-killing, obedience-embracing human being. There's no better way to live. And God's commands are not designed to restrict our freedom, but to maximize our happiness. And that's kind of hard to understand because we kind of go back and say, really? Obedience should be joy-filled and enthusiastic. If God is who he says he is and we are his loved children, the answer is yes. Obedience is to produce maximum happiness. So obedience is essential and there are essentials to, to obedience and Israel's response to God's command gave clear evidence that their hearts were on fire for him. They were, they were just enthused about the God, their creator, their redeemer, their rescuer. They were enthused by it. And the same is to be true for us as a church. Obedience shows that you truly believe and that, that's when I, I, last night I was sitting in all this and I'm going, okay, but there's something that is really kind of missing for us. If this is true, then we take all the commands and say, okay, God, I'll live a more holy life. Okay, I'll put, put this to death and I'll put that to death and I'll come more alive in you here. I'll put this to death and this to death. But there's this command, this beautiful command found in uh, Matthew chapter 28. We, we know it as the... The Great Commission, right? And there's this, this command about, listen, because all authority has been given to me, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of how many nations? All. all. I, I want you to go, baptizing them. And not only baptizing them, but teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I will be with you to even the very end of the age. So that's Jesus saying, listen, it's because of me that you can do this and it's because of me that's going to preserve you and help you and empower you. So Missio Day Church, the thing that's on my heart with this and obedience is that we have got to be having a culture of going. Go, you, wherever you are. I'm not comfortable with evangelism then you're not comfortable with your God. Go, therefore. Make disciples. Have, have coffee and have a dinner. Invite your neighbors to a dinner and say, hey, let me tell you, I, I've been praying for you. I, I love you so much. You, you seem to be heading down this path of destruction. You don't have to be the weird, creepy kind of Christian that hands out chick pamphlets and, you know, it makes them sit down and watch a movie about Jesus. Man, just talk to him about the one who has saved you and redeemed you. Make disciples of all nations. 
talk about it. There is no reason. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm not about numbers. Because that's not necessarily what validates God's work in us. What validates us is actually our sending, our going capacity. Every one of you should have some. I look at that, the, those uh, cards in the back at least once a week and go, God, how many of these people are here today? We've been pray- have we been praying for these people? Have we? Really? Maybe if you haven't, you take that home and you put it on your mirror or you make it, you put it on your, uh, in your car somewhere or a book that you're reading and use it as a bookmark. So you're constantly reminded to pray for this person. Your heart is breaking for them. Go make disciples. We'll baptize them and then we will teach them to obey all that God has commanded because you know what? He's good. And he wants to maximize your happiness in him. So friends, be obedient internally. Be obedient in external personal ways. But man, do not neglect the going and the disciple making. Go, therefore, as to you, the church, not just me as a pastor, every one of you, go. Get off your behinds and go. Obey him. If he is really good, you've got some good news to share. Amen? Amen. So let's pray.